0: Okay. good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker, Dr Selina Todd. Dr Todd has written a number of articles and books and also commentary in the popular press on class, on inequality, on questions of working class history, on questions of feminism, and about women's lives. And today, what we're going to do is actually launch the paperback edition of her latest book. The book is called The People The Rise and Fall of the Working Class, 1910 to 2010. And it's a book which has received a wonderful range of reviews, not just in the scholarly press but across the board, really, um, in the mainstream media and in the newspapers. And I'm thrilled that we've got a chance to uh, launch your paperback here tonight. Um, just to tell you, the book will be on sale after the lecture out in the lobby, um, and Selina will be staying up here at the table after the lecture if you you know want to get um, her to sign your copy. Well, um, you know, the British general election is soon to be upon us. And I think you'd, you'd never know, reading the newspapers, that we've been living through a period um, that has been marked by a profound slump caused by a kind of dog-eat-dog capitalism. Dr Todd has written that I believe there is an alternative to dog-eat-dog capitalism... And with her deep knowledge of 20th century British social history, we thought that she might be a good person to try and restore some kind of perspective in this period leading up to the election. So, Dr. Todd's going to talk for about uh, 40, 45 minutes, and then we're going to have uh, 30 minutes of question and discussion. Can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr. Selina Todd?
1: Very much indeed, everyone, and, and thank you, Robin, for the invitation and for the for the lovely introduction. I was up um, at Falls Bookshop before I came down today, um, making sure that my book was in a prominent place. <laughs> and um, uh, I picked up um, some new book, which is a guide to public speaking based on the most successful of the TED Talks. And it said, you know, keep it light. Um, uh, don't uh, try to give big political messages and only speak for 18 minutes. So I'm afraid that I'm going to fail on all of those counts and I absolutely apologise now but if I go on for one minute longer than 45 minutes you're all allowed to shout at me um, because of course there's there's not really a kind of entertaining way to, to begin a lecture about the working class in a way. Um, uh, some of my reviewers have suggested that I'm romantic or an idealist simply for suggesting that a working class has existed over the last century, but my own view is that actually there's nothing romantic about the working class, because the existence of class testifies to inequality and gross exploitation. To me, class is no romantic identity. Um, There's never been a golden age of the working class. The very fact of the existence of a working class testifies to the fact that we have been, and still unfortunately are, in a profoundly unequal society, and class is a way of thinking about and experiencing that inequality. Um, It's a relationship, and it's a dynamic relationship, and that's what I as a historian am interested in. Um, It matters to me that over 60% of people in this country today identify as working class in opinion polls and surveys. That suggests to me that the policymakers are wrong when they suggest that we either live in a cluster society or one where class is fragmented um, or one where class shouldn't or doesn't matter um, but I don't think that opinion polls and social surveys are enough. We don't, when people go to the polls, say, ah, before you go into the, to the, to the polling station, can you give me a robust definition of democracy in 100 words or less, and if you can't, you're not coming in. Um, but we believe that people who turn up and want to vote do believe in democracy, and I think class is a bit like that, um, and throughout the 20th century, and indeed today, social scientists have sat people down and said, right, what does working class mean? And actually... It's very difficult sometimes with things that mean a lot to us and things that are dynamic and that are shaped by the circumstances that we're in to come up with a really robust, watertight definition. And I'd argue it's pretty much impossible to come up with a single definition of what it is to be working class and what a working class person looks like that holds true for the last hundred years. But I would say that what holds true over the last hundred years is that class is a relationship that is based on unequal power, economic but also social and political. And when we talk about working class people, we're talking about people who feel and know and believe themselves to be on the on the the harsh end of that, really. But we're also talking about people who are treated like that and who are seen like that by the more powerful. And so those groups are the ones that I want to talk about um, in my lecture today. I'm going to talk about work and about trade unions um, and about male workers who are the traditional preserve of labour historians and historians of the working class but I'm also going to talk about life outside work, life at home and on the streets and among women and children as well as men because I think one of the problems that we've had, those of us who are concerned about inequality, is that we're often told that class is just about trade unionism or it's just about what happens in factories and the fact that we haven't got manufacturing so much anymore, although it does still exist. The fact that the unions aren't as powerful as they were, though people do still join them actually, women in larger numbers than men, somehow means that we can't talk about class. And actually one of the things that I've tried to do in my history is to say, you know what, class affects everybody and that's the point of it is that actually it's a way of understanding the last century in Britain, not just for a fragment of the population but for all of us. Class isn't and never was something that you leave at the factory gates, it's an experience that affects you in all walks of life. So, in terms of how that plays out over the last century, because as a historian I always believe that if we're going to know where we where we want to go in the future we've got to know about the past. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about is going to be about that recent past. And in terms of how I conceive it I think We need to think about the last century in ways that are quite different to the ways that are often put out there by policy makers and by media commentators. Because the way that they talk about it tends to be that um, before 1945 uh, people were heroic and they worked hard and in Ian Duncan Smith's view they were able to rely on charity when they needed it. Then we had a welfare state um, and that wasn't such a good thing. This is where it gets really contradictory. That wasn't such a good thing and we had full employment and that probably wasn't such a great thing either. Um, But we had um, a meritocracy and that was a good thing because it allowed the talented to rise to the top and we need to somehow get that back. Um, And then we had a period from about the 1970s where everybody got a bit greedy, um, probably because of that pesky welfare state and started making demands on the economy which meant that the country went into decline and I always love that you know because we always have the country on the one side and the workers on the other and you think well who is this country and I'll come back to that a bit later on. So the narrative that I want to present is is really trying to disrupt that one Um, and and to say there's a different way of thinking about the last century, um, which isn't always a hopeful one. It's a story of despair and of disappointment and defeat a lot of the time, but nevertheless, it's one that we need to own, those of us who want to build a better future, um, because it's the reality that we need to live with, but also... It explodes some of those myths that the policymakers have put out there about what we can learn from the past, because actually a lot of what they cite just isn't true. So. In the first part of of my book, um, and the first part of the 20th century, um, I was keen to look at the period between about 1910 and 1939, and the reason for that was because it it struck me that that was a very sort of discreet period of British history, um, and one that we might think of as being about an epoch of servants and of service. Now... Why servants? Well, in large part because servants were the largest single group of working people in this country until the late 1930s, and the vast majority of them were women. And one of the things that I think we really have to own on the left is the fact that the majority of the population are women, and very often they're left out of political debate. And the problem with histories that focus just on trade unionism or just on manufacturing is that they've missed the fact that actually, actually, many of the campaigns for better working conditions and better pay and so on, they weren't going on in any golden age of manufacturing. They were going on at a time which looks, in some ways, depressingly, not dissimilar from the state that we're in now. A time when most people didn't have recourse to a trade union. A time when people were casually employed and could be dismissed at a moment's notice. And a time when many households were reliant on younger workers or on women workers to make ends meet because there wasn't actually that much secure employment for male breadwinners. So that's one reason for characterising that as a period of service because the single largest group of workers there were indeed servants. But also I came to realise that service really framed political as well as social life in Britain during these years. Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour leader, said in 1924 that he believed that Britain was divided between, in his words, those who serve and those who are served. And I think that puts it rather well. There was a real sense, even though this is the period when we begin to get universal adult enfranchisement um, for the first time, there was a real sense... Um, among the ruling class that they were born to be served and that the rest of us were born to serve them. And that doesn't go away for quite a long time. There is no sense in this history that the First World War suddenly delivered universal male enfranchisement and then after quite a considerable delay universal women's um, enfranchisement simply because people had done a good job in the First World War um, and uh, the, the powers that be wanted to reward them. They had To fight for those rights, and one of my arguments is that many political rights were not actually won until the Second World War, which I'll come to um, very shortly. This kind of slightly feudal mentality of those who served and those who were served was never more evident than in 1926 with the general strike, Um, something which really I think has been missed off the popular history radar uh, for many years. It was the single biggest industrial dispute in this country's modern history. It was a a huge dispute. A massive proportion of the workforce walked out in May of 1926 um, uh, on strike for better pay and conditions. But most of all for the right to negotiate with employers, for the right to a living wage, for the right, really, to industrial democracy. And what those workers were saying is democracy has to go past the ballot box every five years. It has to be something that we have in our workplaces. We want a degree of control over the conditions within which we have to live and work between elections, not just at the ballot box. Um, And that was a really powerful struggle, I think, and really encapsulated many of the aspirations that people were voicing more generally in the 1920s. The strike itself was a massive defeat, um, and usually at this point I go into a sort of brief history of the general strike. But um, I was in work a couple of months ago, and um, uh, I work at St Hilda's College in Oxford, and um, it's you know we 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 say we're an institution that's committed to excellence and equality, but we still have porters and cleaning staff, you know, to do all the proper work, and um, and the porters all read <coughs> my book, and one of the porters came out of the lodge and he said to me, oh, Selina. Um, are you a consultant for Downton Abbey? Well, I've never watched it, I'm afraid. And he said, 1926, the general strike Because you know, it's on TV, you know, what's going on? So, which is great because actually it, it's the first time really that that strike's been commemorated and put out there. And, it, you know, for, for a long time, historians, museums, the powers that be, they, they haven't wanted to commemorate it. So I don't feel that I have to go into a huge amount of, of detail about it. But the strike was a defeat. It, it was lost. Um... And yet, I still think that it has a powerful legacy, and a powerful positive legacy in some ways, and I'd say that that's true for other Labour disputes as well. One of the things that I was really keen to do um, in this book, but that I try to do in my work more generally, is look at the big headline disputes, but also try to find the individual voices behind the statistical trends. And of course, sometimes they contradict the statistical trends in quite interesting ways. Um, and, and what individuals tell you is that memory is also a really important resource for people, and that again is something that I think that we need to hang on to in difficult times today. So huge defeat. Um, uh, the government won. The workers lost. And yet, ordinary people's words, when remembering that strike, remind us that those apparent defeats were never that clear cut. And just one example here from a woman called Winifred Foley. Winifred Foley was 12 years old in 1926. Um, She was born in a small mining village in the Forest of Dean. Um, Her dad was a miner. He took part in the 1926 general strike and the subsequent miners' lockout. And as a result of that, he was blacklisted. And he found it very difficult, nearly impossible, um, to get regular work ever after. What that meant for Winifred was that when she turned 14, two years later in 1928, she had to leave school at the earliest possible opportunity. And not only that, but heartbreakingly for her mum and dad, she had to leave home and travel hundreds of miles to go and live and work in her employer's home, first in London and then at various points around the country, as a skivvy really, um, without any, any other option. She did that for a number of years, Um, and then in the mid-1930s, she was working in London um, in a hall of residence that belonged to the University of London. And the mid-1930s, the country was starting to recover somewhat from the Wall Street crash and the subsequent Depression and unemployment. New kinds of jobs were opening up. Not particularly secure jobs or well-paid jobs. But one kind of job that you could get was in lined corner houses. And Winifred Foley decided that she'd had enough of being a servant um, and that she wanted the freedom that going and being a waitress in a Lion's Corner house would give her. Um, She'd be living on a pit and still, but at least she'd decide when she worked, she'd decide when she went home at the end of the day, rather than living and working in this this Hall of Residence. The last straw for her was when the matron of this Hall of Residence, this Women's Hall, found her talking to one of the London University students in the corridor and told her off, you know, you're not allowed to talk to them, they're not your equal. Um, And Winifred handed in a notice... Um, And she she wrote years later in her autobiography um, about her final day in service. She said, I was doing the washing up that day and I rattled the pots and pans and I sang the red flag and I thought of my dad and all those miners and I almost cried. And then she put down her tea towel and she walked out and she never went back into service. And like many women of her generation, she said to her daughters, you can do anything you want, but you never go and clean for somebody else. So, those servants who didn't have a union, who were often isolated in the attics and the basements of the elite, um, nevertheless were able to draw on their memories and their family experience to aspire to a different kind of life, a different way of life. And they voted with their feet. And as in the mid-1930s, employment opportunities began to pick up again, in many, in many cases for the gravest of reasons, because the rearmament industry um, was beginning to pick up. Up with the threat of war looming, um, they voted with their feet and they left and they went into the factories. And what did they do in the factories? Well, they became a new breed of trade unionists. They were the people who staffed, um, the, who staffed the factory floors and became members of the Transport and General Workers Union, which rapidly became the largest trade union in Britain. Now, this was at a time when trade unionism was really confined to skilled male workers. And people said, well, you couldn't organise women. You couldn't organise unskilled workers. Oh, no, you know, that's never going to happen. It'd be great if we could, but it's never going to happen. And it happened. And again, I think that's something that we can learn from... We can't do it the way that they did it. Those those times are gone. Times are different now. But we should never say it can never happen. We we should never say that organisation can never happen. Because it did then, and it can again, in a different form, but I believe that that it can and that it will happen. What did they do when they got into the Transport and General Workers Union? Well, they fought for greater freedom over their hours and their conditions of work, and they and they won some important victories. And one of the important victories for trade unionists in the 1930s was the Holidays with Pay Act. Again, not a massive campaign that we hear about. And I think that that's partly because we've become quite defensive on the left about saying, you know, if you give them the chance, um, working class people, they want to work really hard, you know, and, and, and they deserve our help, and they deserve our consideration because they want to work really, really, really hard. Actually, a truth that we should all celebrate is that for much of the last century, for much of the time, many workers' campaigns were about working rather less. They wanted more leisure time. And that's an important lesson for the early 21st century because we know now um, that actually well-being, mental health, physical health is really damaged by overwork. We see in our own families what the long hours working culture is doing to people, whether they're on the factory floor a cleaner, or indeed a professional, it's not good for us. And we can learn a lot from those campaigns, but we need to own it and we need to celebrate it and say those were important victories. And without them, we wouldn't have holidays with pay. We we would probably be in an even worse state than we are now in terms of leisure time in this country. Come to the Second World War which um, in the book is a really important turning point and I believe is, is a pivotal moment um, in the history of the 20th century many of us know it's quite a sort of British success story I think still what came out of the Second World War two big things commitment to full employment and a commitment to a welfare state cradle to grave um, uh, uh, services for all who needed them um, We need to remember, of course, that those were delivered by a particular political party, by the Labour Party, elected on a landslide in 1945, because of their commitment to those those services and those resources. But we also need to remember that these weren't goods that were just benevolently given by the Labour leadership um, uh, or by anybody else, they were fought for and they were fought hard for during the war. Something that's often forgotten is that back in 1939, the powers that be were very, very concerned whether they'd actually get anyone to fight in this war. It's a wonderful organisation that was set up in the late 1930s called Mass Observation. More and more people know about it now, partly because great historians like David Kynaston have done a fantastic job of using the diaries and the surveys that Mass Observation put together to show us how ordinary people lived and thought back in the 1940s. Um, and one of the things that Mass Observation was commissioned to do by the government in 1939 and in the early months of 1940 um, as the phony war uh, gave way increasingly to um, conflict on mainland Europe and then to the defeat at Dunkirk and the evacuation of the British army and the sense that all that stood between Britain and a Nazi takeover was this very slim stretch of water. Mass observation were commissioned to go out every month to different towns and cities and lurk around and find out what morale was like um, among ordinary people. And what they found was very worrying. And they used class as a distinction because they said, you talk to working class people and they're not sure that they're going to go and fight. Because what they say is, well, what did the First World War deliver us? Not very much. You know, what difference is it going to make if Hitler lands here? Um, Absolutely shocking stuff, but very, very worrying for the government. And and I think that with war in particular, it's easy to look back and think, oh, there was some kind of inevitability about 1945, but there really wasn't. And in 1940, there wasn't even a kind of sense that people were necessarily going to fight. So there began a political debate at all levels um, about the war aims and about what would people need in order to be convinced that they should go and fight. And the decision was made largely by the Labour ministers, who Winston Churchill brought into his government, um, and most effectively by Ernie Bevan, latterly General Secretary of the Transport and General Workers Union, brought in to the wartime government as Minister of Labour, that what were needed were socially progressive war aims, and that that was what was going to mobilise people and actually get them, um, get them to fight. And indeed, that did make sense to people. And the idea that people were going to be fighting for a welfare state and full employment clearly was something that people really wanted. Because in 1945, it was the servants and the unemployed people of the 1930s who voted in their masses never to go back to the world that they had lost when they elected Labour on that landslide victory. And I just want to give a quote here. We interviewed a lot of people um, for the project that the book The People has come out of, and one of them was Frank Gogarty. And Frank, again, you know, he's no typical Labour activist. He never joined a political party. Um, He was born in rural Warwickshire, just after the First World War, um, and he moved to Coventry to get work in a car factory in the late 1930s. And he wasn't political, and he went to fight in the Second World War very reluctantly, um, because he felt like he and his wife and their two very young sons were only really just putting a life together in 1941 when he was called up. Um, So he went off reluctantly. He didn't go very far. He ended up kicking his heels in a Bournemouth army camp for the next three or four years. Um, But even Frank, who felt very ambivalent about the war, he said, around 1942, this beverage report came out. um, And we all got copies of it. And he said, I remember a line from it. He said, I remember this line about from the cradle to the grave. And it came back to me when in 1945 the election came, because Labour had it in their manifesto. From the cradle to the grave, we will look after you. It was beautiful. And Frank voted Labour, and he said, well, we didn't get everything, but my God, we got a lot. And for him it was a real moment of victory. Labour in 1945 pitched their appeal to the people against the vested interests. And I think that's a real reminder that there's no one single type of working class person who can be appealed to, that actually at a certain level many of us who have to work for a living can be appealed to on the basis that we're ordinary, that there's more that holds us together than drives us apart. And I think in 1945 Labour showed that that could be done because actually... Only ten years before, there were articles in the popular press about the squeezed middle, really, Um, uh, the the middle-class householders writing in saying that they felt that their interests were being overlooked um, by governments who looked more to the rich and then sought to give money to these unemployed, the great unwashed. Um, And yet, by 1945, many of those clerks and school teachers and so on, they were voting Labour as well in big numbers because the welfare state and full employment Those bold assertions made sense to them as well, because in an insecure world, whether it's caused by war or whether it's caused by economic recession, everybody recognises that from the cradle to the grave could make sense to their children. Now, the period between the mid-1940s to the 1960s was one when life really did get better for many people in many ways. The welfare state, far from making people idle, tended to help them to help themselves. And I had this conversation just on Sunday. I was at a lunch and um, I was sat next to a guy who was um, head of an accountancy firm. And I never quite worked out what he was doing there, because actually it was a lunch to celebrate International Women's Day, but yeah, who knew? Um, and um, uh, and he was saying to me, oh, how interesting, you've written about the working class. And I thought, I can just imagine what's coming and sure enough, he said, and I, I presume that some, somewhere along the line, and the welfare state came in and, and people got a bit complacent and that's why you know, we've got you know, all these lazy asses now you know. um, and actually um, what's really interesting of course is that at the period when the welfare state was strongest in this country we also have um, the highest employment statistics which suggests that actually you give people a foundation on which to build um, and they really spring from that And story after story that I've heard in my research bears that out. And just one, um, a woman called uh, Hazel Wood, who grew up in the 1950s, um, and she had really vivid positive memories of how her mum and dad experienced economic security in the early 1950s, and particularly her mum. Hazel's mum grew up in Sunderland in the northeast of England in the 1930s. And in the late 30s, her dad was out of work. And Hazel's mum was the eldest of eight children. So she had to leave work. Um, She had to leave school and get a job. And the only work that she could find um, was really hourly paid work in a local shop. Um, And she worked there every hour that they could give her, knowing that some weeks that was the only money that the family of ten were going to have to live on. Fast forward a few years, she's had to go through World War, the Blitz. They've moved halfway across the country so that her newly married husband can try and find a job. And there they are, with him in a secure factory job, and her able to get a bit of shop work just on the side um, for, in her terms, luxuries. And this is how Hazel remembered that woman. She laughed a lot, my mother, Hazel said. She'd known hard times and she was so glad to have come through them. And for people like that, life really had changed. And um, When we hear people talking about the austerity of the 1950s and the way that the welfare state holds people back and oh, the oppression of the nanny state, I always remember Hazel's mum and I think it didn't hold her back. It allowed her to laugh for the first time in her adult life. Hazel's mum was absolutely adamant that her children were never going to know the kind of poverty and insecurity and fear that she had lived with in the 1930s. But again, it wasn't handed to her or her children on a plate, that new kind of life. She and others like her worked really, really hard to bring about the kind of life that we now associate with sort of post war affluence the TVs, the three piece suites, the paid holiday, all of that kind of thing was very much something which was brought about, yes, by full employment, yes, by a welfare state, but also by people working damned hard. In the 1950s, some of those people who worked hard were people like Hazel's mum. The proportion of married women who went out to work work, doubled during these years in the 50s and 60s. What really changes from the 1950s onwards is the proportion of mothers who are going out to work once once their kids have gone into school. So what were they working for? Because this debate still goes on today, and you know, Willett, who we never hear about very much anymore, but you know, he was forever saying a few years ago, oh, somehow you know, women are taking men's jobs and, you know, and so forth. Um, so, so what were these women going out and working for? Newspaper editors at the time, politicians, later historians, tend to argue about whether groups like married women or mothers work for necessities or for luxuries. I think it's a really false division. The 1950s were a decade where people were being told by Tory governments that they'd never had it so good. And so when the gap between the rich and the rest was rising once more... Understandings of what was essential were really rapidly changing. And before we start condemning people today for being materialistic, we might like to think about the kinds of images that are being put out there, not only by advertisers, but also by our politicians who are forever saying, the economy's recovering, everything's absolutely fine. It's very easy in that situation to think, well, yeah, okay, in that case, you know, I just need to work a bit harder to make sure that we've got these, these things for my kids that everybody else's kids seem to want and have. So the new house, the TV, three-piece suite, the package holiday, they weren't huge gains that were benevolently given to people who'd fought a world war. They were often bought at a heavy price, with huge numbers of consumers being reliant on credit. Because the 1950s, the conservative decade, was also the decade when, when debt became really acceptable. The Conservatives made it easier to get debt, to use higher purchase, Um, and so many workers relied very heavily on debt to fund every large purchase from the rented TV to new clothes for the children. Why am I going into this kind of detail? They were good decades on the whole. They were better than what had gone before, and in some ways they were better than what was to come. The point I'm trying to make, really is, let's be clear, there was never a golden age. Capitalism has never worked for the majority of people. And if we're looking to the future, we're going to have to do better than try and resurrect what was there in the post-war years. There were some huge gains, and council housing was a massive one. Um, One example, a woman called Betty Ennis, um, who got a council house from Coventry Council in the early 1950s. Betty was an Iranian woman. Her dad um, was British, but he'd worked in Iran before the war, and he decided to bring his family home, including his Iranian wife and his children, at the end of the war. Um, Betty was uh, found a home in a migrants' hostel on the outskirts of Coventry. Um, she met Michael, an Irish labourer, and in the early 1950s they were granted a council house for them and their three children. Um, The day that the letter arrived, she said, I jumped up and I said, we're going to have this house and we're going to stay there. And she still lives there today, many decades later far from leading to stagnation in the building market or a lack of innovation the fact that the state was brave enough to take on housing as a massive project at a time when a huge proportion of the population were badly in need of housing actually led to all kinds of innovations a massive nationwide survey in 1960 found that most people who were owner occupiers would have preferred to have been in some kind of council house partly because of the security that it would have given them other than having a big more Mortgage, but also because council houses were more likely than private houses to have hot water and indoor bathrooms. It wasn't private builders who were seeking to make the quickest profit who brought that into British housing, it was council housing. And so council housing can be and was very desirable. The other point that Betty's experience makes is that the working class in this country it was never entirely male, neither was it ever entirely white. Betty identifies as black, um, and she certainly looks black to people who don't know about her heritage. So the working class was never entirely white, the Ennises were a migrant family, um, and they were not made to feel that their good fortune in getting a council house somehow cost other people opportunities. And the reason for that, I think, was because at local level, the council, Coventry Council in this case, really put some effort into thinking about how do we make these opportunities available for the widest possible section of the local community. So rather than saying, well, council housing is just for the 1% who are most in need, what they did was to say, OK, council housing is for as many people as we can afford to give it to, and we're going to build alongside that a proper infrastructure of new schools and new shops that are available not just to people on this estate where Betty is, but to the people around that estate as well. There was a community housing association, which didn't just include the tenants, but also the owner-occupiers nearby. Um, And that, I think, really helped to knit together that community in positive ways. And indeed, the community association is still there today. But it wasn't an equal society, and nowhere do we see that more than in education, After the Second World War, Labour adopted, with the approval of the Conservative Opposition, the tripartite system of secondary education, um, which was meant to mean that people would go to a school based on their ability, which was going to be tested by an exam, the 11 plus, that they took at the age of 10. The tripartite system quickly became a bipartite one. So you have about 20% of people going to an academically selective grammar school and then the rest of people going to secondary modern schools. Now we hear a lot today about the need to reinvent that wonderful golden age of social mobility. It wasn't a golden age of social mobility and actually I'd really like us to question whether social mobility is a social good because social mobility always leaves the majority of people at the bottom of the pile and they don't deserve to be there. We're often told today that people don't get on at school because their parents are lazy and lack aspiration. But my research suggests that that's far from the truth. Just one example here. Bill Rainford. Bill grew up in Liverpool. He was born in Liverpool at the end of the Second World War. Um, And this is how he remembers the end of his primary school days. Um, he said I really wanted to join the scouts and um, my mother made it a condition that I passed my 11 plus. She went out to work in a shop and she bought us books and she bought us toys and she was really ambitious for us kids. So I worked really hard and I felt like I had a really happy home life and my mum and dad really supported me. On the day of the results, I came home and I knew the letter would have come and I was pretty confident. And my dad was sitting in the kitchen and I said, "Has it come?" and he said, "Yes." And he looked at me and he just went, no. And I went upstairs and I was a bit upset. And I think my mum was too. But when I came down, she said, after tea, get ready and you can go to the Scouts. And I said, but you said I had to pass my 11 plus. And she said, never mind. Parental aspiration had nothing to do with the outcome of these results. Countless social surveys found the same at the time. The politicians today don't want to admit it. But the unpalatable truth is that if you say opportunities are restricted to the few, the many, whether they deserve to or not, will always lose out. So, moving forward then to the final section of the of the twentieth century in this whistle stop tour, the period from the late 1960s onwards. I call that in my book, The Period of the dispossessed um, and if we 've not been that cheerful so far i 'm afraid it goes right downhill from here. Um, There's a real myth, as I said at the beginning, um, that the late 1960s, 1970s is a period when the working class lost all their gains by becoming really greedy and really demanding. And I think it is true that people became a bit more assertive and a bit more confident about what what they wanted. What they wanted though was far from unreasonable. They wanted more control about the way that they worked, about the work that they did, about the homes in which they lived. They wanted in fact more democracy, something that we're constantly being told today we should want and we should embrace and I think that's quite right, we should embrace it. And it's no surprise, really, that this happened in the early 1970s, because by 1970, two generations had experienced universal adult enfranchisement. The generation who'd who'd come through the Second World War had been told that they deserved better because they'd fought in that war. Um, Those who came up through the generation of Bill Rainford, while they'd often been let down by the education system, had nevertheless been given the message by the welfare state and full employment that they were entitled to a decent home and a wage and, and that and the, though the, the people who run the country should do it really for them. That's further encouraged, I think, um, by full employment and by the kind of sense that you have a decent job and you can then really begin to build aspirations on that foundation. So it's the teenagers of the early 1960s, the ones who are the mods and the rockers and following the Beatles and getting involved in all of that kind of new culture, who, at the end of that decade, find themselves picketing the factories and demanding more rights at work. They've been part of this new, affluent teenager generation, only to find that they're then expected to spend most of their life on the factory production line. And they say, no thanks, we'd like something a bit better than that, please. And among them was a woman called Judy Walker. Judy left school um, in the mid-1950s, she'd been at a secondary modern school, Um, and uh, she said herself, you know, she had a happy and quite secure home life. Both of her parents were in work, Um, they were earning a decent wage, they had a council house, but Judy as she became a late teenager found herself really kicking against it. She said, it was the sameness of everything. Go to work, come home from work, put your feet up, go to the club on a Saturday night, have your roast dinner on a Sunday, same again on a Monday. That was my mum and dad. I just didn't want it for me. I wanted something more. Isn't that the kind of imagination and innovation that we're supposed to want in, in an economy, in an expanding economy, in, in a place where we're meant to be innovating? But she couldn't find that kind of life in Britain. So she emigrated to South Africa with her husband. That didn't work out. So she came back in the 1970s. She got a council house, um, a council flat, sorry, in the 1970s. But she was really horrified at how difficult life was for her as a single mother. And she became one of a whole raft of women, unsung heroes of women's liberation, I call them, right across the country, outside the consciousness-raising groups of North London, who fought for nursery places, who fought for better tenants' rights Associations who, who went out on rent strikes, who really fought for more control over their communities, and they had some important victories. And one of their victories was the increase in nursery places. We know now how vital preschool care is. But, you know, for all the welfare state's innovation... How, how much do you think the proportion of you, of nursery places, the, number, the percentage of nursery places available for the preschool population, how much did that increase between the 1930s and the 1970s? It didn't increase at all. It was these women and their campaigns that helped nurseries to grow in the 1970s. Um, uh, it came from the grassroots up, and we should never forget that. We owe them a great deal, even though there's more to do. So... We often were told that the oil crisis of the early 1970s was the reason why full employment had to go, why the welfare state had to go. Um, But... I try to question that in my research because it seems to me that there's always a choice in how you deal with economic crisis. We're seeing that today in the debates in Europe about how to deal with economic crisis. And there was a conscious choice on the part of the the major political leadership of both political parties um, to abandon the notion that the workers' welfare should come first. Because there was a sense that the demands that were being made in the factory floor and by the rent strikers and by ordinary people were becoming very threatening. Because what they were saying is we want more control over work, we want more control over home. And that was threatening and that's why I think that the dispossessed and that kind of sense of dispossession dates from the early 1970s, not just from the 1984-85 defeat that was the miners' strike. What does change under Thatcher is that there then is a concerted, I would argue, conspiracy to destroy the organised working class. And when I was writing the book, I was very apprehensive about saying that because, you know, people love saying, oh, the left is full of conspiracy theorists. But of course, actually we know now from the papers that have been released recently, um, the official government papers, that in fact, Margaret Thatcher's government were involved in talks right from the start, right from 1979, about how to destroy the miners. Um, uh, and that there was indeed um, a concerted effort to destroy the organized working class, so just very briefly, where does that leave us with that kind of destruction of the working class and, and, and the, the the decline in the end of those kinds of, of, of those kinds of labor labor institutions like the trade unions well. In order to gauge that, I went out and interviewed a lot of people who I'd been at school with. I grew up in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, I know you wouldn't think it from the accent, and I went to a very big, very ordinary, comprehensive school, and I spoke to a lot of the people who I'd been at school with about their lives ever since. So these are people who are in their early 40s now. Now most of them still do identify as working class, and they still say that they believe most people are working class. But whereas past generations would sometimes have said that that was a source of pride, for them often it's a source of shame. And partly I think that's um, one of the wonderful legacies um, that neoliberalism is leaving us with, because actually being ordinary in the past was sometimes a kind of a a sense of pride and a sense of collectivism with other people, was was something that people honoured. But actually being ordinary in a neoliberal society, it's not enough, is it? Because we know what being ordinary means today. It means being on a zero-hours contract. It means being unemployed. It means not being able to afford to buy a house for you and your family. So people had grown up aware that, in fact, um, what you have to be is exceptional. And so being working class um, is something which people feel very ambivalent about. When things went wrong... They were often more likely to blame themselves than to blame the powers that be. Um, And that, too, I think, is a change in some ways from earlier generations. And I'll just give one example of that. Um, A school friend of mine called Jackie. Um, Jackie uh, left school at 18. Her dad had been a worker on the shipyards, and she'd learned from his experience. He'd ended up on a zero-hours contract. And she said, I left school, and I determined that I was going to show the world what you could do with a positive attitude and a big smile. It's neoliberalism in action. You know, it's all down to me these days and it's all down to your personality Um, and for a while she did it and she became what was known as um, a consultant by her late 20s only to find that when her firm downsized her boss gave her the push and the loyalty and the long hours that she'd given them for for 10 years of her life were not repaid in any way Jackie had a breakdown because she really believed that it was down to her depressing place to end so I won't end there Um, I'll end with what I think is hopeful, which is that for that generation, where things began to change was when they talked about their children. And this is something that I think we can really learn from going forward. That generation were quite prepared in some ways to blame themselves for their own defeats and their own failures, but they were damned if people were going to blame their kids for the defeats and failures that they were already experiencing in education, and which, with those who'd had children, say, 20 years ago, they were beginning to suffer in a labour market that offered them no more than a dead-end apprenticeship and a zero-hours contract at the end of it. And when they talked about their children, they began to talk collectively about the desire to have something better for the next generation, not just their own children, but also about the fact that there must be something out there that was wrong, wrong with the infrastructure, because they were damned if they were going to say that it was their children's personalities that was to blame for the state that they're in. And that's something that I think we might be able to unite around as we look to the future, that actually most of us, whether or not we've got children, and I personally haven't got children, but we want a better future for the next generation. And we have a massive resource that those servants didn't have back in the 1930s with their own casual contracts and lack of trade unions. We have the resource of memory, because what went on in the 50s and 60s was far from perfect But it worked to some extent. The welfare state had a lot of gains. Full employment did an enormous amount. They didn't know that in the 1930s, yet they were visionary enough to try and fight for it. We do know that some parts of that work. I'm not suggesting for a minute that we go back to that past. We've got to build a different and better future. But I really hope we can use history to help us. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Um, We've got um, about 25 minutes now for questions and discussion. I'm going to start by taking individuals, but if there's a lot of people, I might um, group some together. Can we start with that woman on the side there? Could you just say who you are and where you're from in each case, please?
2: Hi, my name is Alex and I am a student in international history and master's student here. And so my question is in the last century we've seen the emergence of childhood and the real post-education. Do you think this has impacted class relationships between because now children of all classes can afford to be children and adolescents?
1: To take a few, well okay. You're, you're. So, uh, I just want to be sure that I've understood your your question right. So, because um, you had something there about about education and childhood. So, we, were you meaning the fact that everyone? I'm sorry. I didn't quite. I didn't quite understand what you meant.
2: Sorry. Um, just that now, you know, everyone's educated. We have a huge push for secondary education and um, university now, and how. You know, that's the biggest source of social mobility is education, but it's only childhood is a recent phenomenon, but now it's something that everyone can have and okay, it impacts okay. education.
1: Thank you for that. That's really interesting. Um, I'd actually dispute that education is a driver of social mobility. Um, one of the things that really, that really struck me doing this research is is that there's this myth that somehow if the schools were better, we'd have, we'd have greater social, social mobility. Um, and actually, as I tried to point out in the talk, one of the, the lessons that I think we can learn from, from the post-war education system is that, in fact, it didn't really promote social mobility because what it did was it continued to leave most people at the bottom of the pile. Now, where there was a really big change was in the late 1970s. And what's interesting about the late 70s is it's then, for the first time, that you get a significant proportion of children from working-class homes going into further and higher education for the first time. So what's changed in the late 1970s? Well, two things, and both of them due to Harold Wilson's Labour governments. Um, One, the expansion in university places but two, the establishment of comprehensive education. Because by 1975, the majority of children in this country are educated in non-selective comprehensive schools. And what all research suggests, qualitative and quantitative, is that what that does is it gives a a huge pool of children access to post-16 educational opportunities for the very first time, and they take them, um, and they use them. So I think that that was really where we see the educational revolution happening. It's in terms of comprehensive education. Um, But I'm actually not convinced that that means that there's a kind of a similar or even a universal experience of childhood and adolescence because I think that people's expectations of where they go post 16 for most of the 20th century but also now post 18 are still very differentiated. I mean one of the things that makes me really angry about this debate around universities is the kind of assumption that this government seems to seems to feed on that well you know the fact that university admissions haven't gone down since we put tuition fees up to £9,000 means everything's alright. Well actually, one of the things that the last government pointed out was that we were still trying to get most young people into higher education and I think everybody who wants a university education should be able to have it and I am far from convinced that they have access to it at the moment um, and until we scrap fees completely, you know forget putting them down to six k, they need to go, we're not going to have that kind of universal foundation on which to build society.
0: Okay, let's take a couple of questions this time. Can I have the gentleman with glasses and then the woman with the green, uh, with the blue, yeah, the blue hand.
3: Uh, yeah, thanks. So, so, who you are and where you're from. Uh, yeah, uh, Phil Walden, uh, I live in Oxford, main interest, Hegelian and Marxist philosophy. Um, Here you are. Thanks, Dr Todd, for your talk, which I enjoyed. Um, I wonder if you were a bit kind to the Labour politicians in the wartime government and a bit kind to the post-war Labour government, uh, because um, my understanding uh, of what the working class were going through in that period Uh, is that they had a really hard time during the Second World War, both the soldiers at the front and the women in the factories. And when the war ended, they were all... all, all, In the main, they were very angry. They were very angry with their own politicians that they had been put through such a hard time. Um, And my analysis of what happened in that period is that the Labour politicians tried very hard to confuse the working class and to prevent the working class from realising that they, the working class, could themselves run society. Um, and so we, we had what we had were sops given to the working class in order to prevent the working class from... Um, Achieving what it could have achieved, which is real power in society at that time, um, and I, I would argue that we've always had that kind of behaviour from the Labour Party. Okay. Uh, so I wonder what you think about that. Thanks. I just want to get in a
0: few more questions. Can we have the woman in with the blue um, top on?
2: Thank you. Uh, I think you said that working class people now are more likely to blame themselves rather than the system. I wondered if you could expand a bit on that. Do you mean they're more likely now than they were before or they are more likely than other classes to do that? Thank you.
0: Okay, thanks.
1: Okay, um, dealing with the first point, very briefly, yeah, I agree, absolutely. Um, you know, yeah, whistle stop tour in, in 40 minutes. I'd agree with you, absolutely. And one of the questions that I'm someone has asked is well, you know, if, if it was all like this, how come we had a, a decade then of Tory governments? I would give your response, which is that actually Labour stopped investing in the alliance of the people against vested interests at too early a stage and actually peddled this idea of meritocracy, you rise from your class, not with it. Um, And the Conservatives are always going to outdo you on that because they can always, you know, peddle the idea of, you know, consumption and, you know, we'll take away rationing, which is what they said, and, you know, we'll give you the, the opportunity to start your own little business and all of that. And I think that that was something that was really crucial in terms of them winning votes. So, yeah, I'd agree with you. I think that there was a compelling argument there in 1945 um, that was then relinquished, um, which was a shame. Um, in terms of working class people blaming themselves, thank you for that question. Um, I'm very happy to clarify. Yeah, I do mean in terms of earlier generations. Um, and I'm not trying to say, therefore, that the experience of class was either rosy or victorious um, for earlier generations. And, um, you know, I hate to say that, you know, the, the book that I wrote about this is full of stories of privation and despair, I'm afraid, <laughs> um, alongside more positive ones. Um, but I do think that there's a sense now of people uh, blaming themselves more for the state that they're in. Um, I think that that could can be can be turned around though because I think I think what people still crave is a sense of control over their lives, and that's one of the continuities that I really try to point to through the century as a whole. And and an aspiration for control over your life can be answered in a variety of different ways. We're used to thinking of it individualistically. You know, it's one of the reasons why I think Margaret Thatcher's appeal around owning your own council house um, got some purchase in the early 1980s, although actually not as much electorally as we might think. Um, because what she suggested was, you can start your own little business, you can own your own house, you can have control over your life. Now, that was a very individualistic argument. But actually, we see earlier in the century, it being made in much more of a collective way, like, you know, the project of 1945, like Betty Ennis's experience of feeling like one of a number of pioneers on a council estate. And what we see, I think, now, when people talk about blaming themselves and trying to change themselves and trying to change their personality um, is still that craving that we all have I think for a bit more control over our lives Um, and what we need to do is to realise that actually we can respond to that collectively and that you know having therapy, trying to change yourself from within trying to be a better parent, it can only ever achieve so much and we should let each other and let ourselves off the hook a bit more and say we're only going to change things if we get together and try and do it collectively.
0: Okay, let's take um, two questions. We start with this woman down the front here, and remember to say who you are, and then um, Lisa.
2: Yeah. Uh, You said that capitalism never works for people, never worked for people. Um, Is it possible that inequality is like, it's a natural phenomena that, and, and, um, and is important for uh, economical advancement, since equality is impossible. For instance, like perfection, it doesn't have a drop of reality in it.
0: Okay. And um, yes, Lisa.
2: Hi, uh, I'm Lisa McKenzie. I'm from the LSE Sociology. Um, I suppose I'm I'm going to just add on to that question that was just asked. Um, I'm not as hopeful as you, Selina, about people sort of hoping for their children. I know that's true. I know that that people know that their children don't deserve the unfairness and inequalities that they are putting up with at the moment. But I think the problem here is... Also, I think the middle class are coming under sort of a squeeze as well from the elites, from the top. And while, while that's happening, how do, how do we in the working class sort of fight those sharp elbows of the middle class? Because every time we, we fight... You've got the sharp elbows of the middle class who are making sure that public, that the private schools are still around. They're, they are private tutoring their children within an inch of their life in order to get ahead of the game. So I'm, I'm not as sort of optimistic as you, really. I, I think that as this struggle gets tougher and tougher, the working class, you know, life will get diff- more difficult. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, some really interesting points there um, I don't think that inequality is natural I mean I'm a historian, I'm not, I'm not a biologist and, and one of the things that always makes me groan is when my students talk about either tradition, which as a historian called Gareth Stubborn Jones once said is basically the period before you've read a book about or human nature because I don't think we really know I don't, I don't think that we really know our full capacities yet. You know, scientists tell us that there are still whole huge areas of the brain that they've yet to properly map. So I don't think we can talk about things as being natural or, or unnatural. What I think we can say is that inequality hasn't worked. Um, that, you know, it hasn't worked for the majority of the people. And it goes back to what I said at the beginning about this kind of way that politicians um, and journalists and some scholars talk about the country, you know, and talk about the last century as being one of, um, uh, you know, economic decline because the workers had too much. And you know, you just say, well, just stop there, you know, and, and don't let's start with the country. Let's start with people, you know, and say, well what actually works for the majority of people? And I don't think that capitalism or inequality has worked for the majority of people at, at all times. And I think that there are ways of of uniting around experiences where people often do um, feel themselves to be or to to want equality. And this might sound sort of a, a bit convoluted, but bear with me. I think that reproduction is, is one of those, because actually what you do when you choose to reproduce yourself, when you choose to have children, is, so far as I can see it, quite a selfless act in some ways. Yes, you're reproducing yourself, but you're actually saying, I'm going to give up hours, years of my life... For the good of of somebody else or some other people, um, which I think is quite altruistic, but also what you're saying there is, I'm going to produce people who are not, on the whole, I think parents don't think who are going to be my inferiors. They think who are going to be my equals or may even do better than me. And I think that that's really hopeful. That actually, at a a natural level, in terms of our relationships with each other, we're often craving equality. Um, And you see that I think in the movement, in the, in, the, in the movements for civil rights across the world, in the new global social activism movements that are, that are coming out now. And I guess to, to, to address your point, Lisa, some of those movements give me hope, but I, like you, am um, very worried about the future. And I guess I sometimes feel like, like all we have is hope and anger um, and the memories of what went before. I think that we're at the bottom of of a, of a really steep hill. But one thing that I am absolutely sure about is that leaders, um, including from the middle class, have never won anything big in this country for ordinary people. And they aren't going to start now. I think you're absolutely right. So, so thinking that leaders are somehow going to do something for us um, uh, is a problem. And certainly... The the final chapters of my book are full of, you know, nuggets of wisdom from Mumsnet, you know, with people really expressing what I would term class hatred in terms of why they want their children to go to private school or why they don't want them to go to the local neighbourhood school. Um, uh, What I would say is that I think there are ways of finding finding moments of unity around there. And I'm not fudging it. I think that the anger has to come through. And I think that we have to, we have to own the fact that there are people within the middle class who seek to oppress working-class people, who identify as middle class, even though they have to work for a living because they believe themselves to be better than the majority. Um, and, um, and that should make us angry. Um, and let's not look to them for leadership. I do think that sometimes their anxieties can be useful in building uh, broader coalitions, broader fights. And just one example of that, in, in Oxford, where I work, there's a big campaign going on at the moment which involves Danny Dorling, among other people, around schooling. Now, we've had huge trouble in Oxford trying to get people to meetings about, about creating more equality in schooling, precisely because 25%, 25% of children in Oxford go to private schools because their parents believe that the children from places like Cowley Um, are not good enough to sit in the same classroom as their sons and daughters but academisation has changed that because what they have seen with the academies um, is a sense that schools are disappearing out of local control um, and they don't necessarily want that and it's beginning to happen at primary level which is the stage at which the middle class in Oxford have not traditionally used the private sector so suddenly there's some kind of alliance there that we can work with but I absolutely take your point
0: Okay, um, can we have the gentleman on the front here? Um, and do say who you are and where you're from. Uh, my name is Kun
2: Choi, and I'm from UCL Energy Institute, and uh, have a question about uh, this blaming, uh, self-blaming. So... Um, Beside the self-blaming, uh, there is also a lot of blaming on the, you know, the foreign competition, the laborers from the different countries, also migrant workers to UK in nowadays. So, so is it possible to build this uh, the working class solidarity with, uh, in the global context across the different countries and across the, the competitions between countries? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, thank you. And uh, then the, the woman at the very back with her hand up if you can just wait. And I, I might just take a third question because we're running out of time. Um, Matthew, up the back there. Hi,
2: Divya, I'm an LSE alumni. I'm um, sort of... Ta- I'm Divya, I'm an LSE alumni. Um, tangentially related to that question, um, one of the big election platform issues is um, the immigration debate. But what... I don't see this framed um, often is in terms of it's also a class debate, mm-hmm. so the sort of controls that are you know trying to be brought in are targeted at a specific class of immigrants that would most likely make up what most likely make up the working class, and I see that voice entirely absent from you know debates and numbers and controls and so on so I just wanted your thoughts on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and just a a third person there. If you could just stick your hand up so that... Yep, that, that person next to the wall...
2: Possibly a more uh, esoteric question, but I just wanted to
0: understand how you conceived um, class um, in the con- and how you saw your social history in, in the context of um, the wider British tradition of social history with E.P. Thompson, with um, Christopher Hill, with Hobsbawm. How, how do you conceive class? Is the way you conceive class... Do you, do you, what do you take from Thompson? What do you take from the tradition... Do we need to uh, reconstitute the tradition in the 21st century, or what is it we can we can we can learn from the, the rich tradition of British social history? So yeah. Thank
1: okay. Thanks very much. Um, so dealing with migration first, um, I think that you're absolutely right that class has to um, be part of that debate and it's it's hilarious really isn't it that a government that says oh you know we've had to dismantle um, all legislation protecting workers rights um, then has no trouble saying we are protecting workers rights um, by uh, putting in place all of this very expensive um, regulation of migrant workers and as you say those migrants themselves are often working class it's one of the things that makes me really impatient about the class debate more generally that when the media, when politicians do want to debate class um, they begin with the idea that the working class is white. The white working class was a term that was first used by the BBC back in 2006 I don't think they picked it up off in a state I'm not for one minute suggesting that there isn't racism among working class people but I think we need to think about racism among our political media elite as well um, and it's been picked up with great alacrity by politicians <laughs> of all parties um, And the suggestion that's made is that somehow race, not class, is of primary importance to people um, and needs to be of primary importance to our understanding of inequality. And I think that that really does the work of neoliberalism um, for it, because this, this focus on race... And migration within political debates around inequality, I think really denies the intersection of of race and class that one of the questioners pointed out in the experience of, um, of exploitation. And actually, focusing on class as a form of oppression can, I think, help to challenge um, neoliberal attempts um, to combat racism, attempts which have largely been ineffective. And what I mean by that is that I think that combating racial intolerance by promoting tolerance of of non-white people, which is all neoliberalism has to offer, like tolerating women on on boards while paying most of them a pittance to be cleaners, um, is naive as well as offensive. It is at least, I guess, an approach that suggests that you shouldn't um, be discriminated against simply because of your skin colour or your gender. But actually, if we look at class, what's really interesting about it is that, of course, tolerance doesn't work. Because what does tolerance of working class people mean? Tolerance of a working class means tolerating inequality. That's what that means. You know, getting middle class people to talk a bit more nicely to their working class cleaners is, is not going to solve, you know, class issues. And this relates to the first point that was made about, you know, is there is there scope for global unity? I think by bringing back the language of class, we might be able to get that. Because, you know, tolerance doesn't work for us, but actually talking about inequality in class terms really can globally. Um, But let's not be too romantic about it. You know, someone said to me at a meeting in Sheffield a few weeks ago, oh, you know, we've got global capitalism, but how can we ever build a global labour movement? Well, you know what? They always started local. I mean, look at the Torpoddle Martyrs back in the 19th century. They didn't realise that they were on the verge of building an international movement of trade unionism. They were just starting in one Dorset town. You know, they paid a heavy price for And I I think that's what we need to do. You know, we need to start local. And we can do that by taking on the intersection of race and class because, actually, we do benefit from having many migrants within our population. The point on um, E.P. Thompson and so on, um, I know that we're running out of time, so um, I'll keep it brief. I absolutely buy into the E.P. Thompson School of Social History. Um, I think of myself as um, E.P. Thompson with servants added in, um, but with very much a kind of sense of, you know, a a 21st century perspective in that he was writing, and I think that tradition was writing really, about working-class organisation. Um, and I think that we're going to need to look at different forms of organisation and so one of the things that I've been really concerned with is thinking about people's aspirations and their hopes as well as their actions whereas Thompson, to some extent focused more on their actions having said that he did look at their visions for the future and their ideals um, and he's been forgotten in some ways by historians in recent decades and I think we need to rediscover him but I've got a, an article in social history actually that's just come out which is about exactly that
0: okay well I mean I think should, should we just take yeah, um, two more questions um, we're going to have to end a little bit earlier than normal I should have made that point um, at the beginning because the speaker has to move off so we'll just take one more round of questions can I have the, the gentleman up um, the gentleman in the middle there did you have your hand up or yep mm-hmm. Uh, Paul McGrail, Catholic Workers Group. Um, in any discussion of cradle to grave uh, welfare st- uh, statism, um, the inevitable question is, how, how are you going to pay for these things? And just picking up on your uh,
1: your, your comment on on student fees, uh, to my knowledge, there's not one vice chancellor in this country that is. That would be a proponent or is advocating the reduction t- from nine thousand to nil without uh, a clear clear policy as how that's going to be funded. So just on that one example,
0: how could you explain uh, the the finances of it? Okay, and um, the, the, the person right next to you I think had their hand up. Did, yeah hey were you were you wanting to just speak? No. Sorry, we? Yes. Oh, thank you. Uh, Yeah, uh, you mentioned towards the end of your speech that we should learn from history. Would you further uh, specify exactly what should be learned and why? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I think that's That's such a a a short question that I'll just take... (laughs) And just as a last question, this gentleman with the dark hair here in the second row... um,
1: I think one thing that a lot of people, well, a lot of historians kind of miss because it's happened so recently, obviously, is the internet and the fact that, you know, 87% of households now have this incredible resource. So, I'm I'm wondering, looking to the future, does the internet offer a new method of collectivisation for the working class, especially on a global level? Okay, great. Um, So, three questions that take us towards the, the, the future. Thank you. Um... So usually what I do is I duck behind and go oh well I'm a historian you know I can't, I can't say what the future looks like but actually you know you've been, you've been set up very nicely there because the other two questions sort of suggest well what about tax and how would we pay for things and what about the internet um, and I'd say as I said in response to Lisa I think we're at the bottom of a mountain to climb I think we're only going to do that collectively I as an Oxford don I'm certainly not going to say that I've got a blueprint because I've yet to see any historical event or movement for Change, which has actually been led by an Oxford don, and I don't think it's going to start now. I think we need to listen to people um, and learn from them. But um, a few thoughts that came out of, of, of the the um, the other two questioners in terms of the internet. Yeah, I think it's a terrific resource, and um, I was a, a fantastic. I was hosting a fantastic International Women's Day weekend event in Oxford last Friday, and Caroline corrado Perez spoke there, and she said, you know, you hear a lot in the media about you know me and other feminists. Being trolled, but never forget that that's that's backlash from all the positive stuff that we get through the internet um, and through 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 social media more more generally, and that's absolutely true. And you know, you only have to look at say the dispute around um, uh, paying uh, proper wages and giving proper wor- uh, working conditions to workers in um, in the picture house chain. So much of their organisation went on on the internet. Many of us didn't even know about that nationwide campaign and indeed victory, except through the internet, because was it on the BBC? No. And if you think about the 84-85 miners' strike, we know now um, that all of that footage around the Battle of Orgreave, the BBC have had to admit that it was doctored by police, that it was taken from behind police lines. Can you imagine if people had had mobile phones? You know, we saw it on the streets of London when they were kettling people, and when the the police were trying to deny, the Met were trying to deny that that poor man um, had, had really been killed, as it was the of their actions. We, the, we only got the truth out because people had their mobile phones and, and filmed what was going on. So I think it's hugely important. And then just to end briefly, in terms of how to finance the future, um, I have one word, tax. And the idea that tax is unpopular... I'm sorry. Where's the evidence? Where is the evidence? Labour was elected in 1945 on a landslide um, and was committed to, to to people paying high tax. I put my hand for, up for it. And you know, going back to my moment in files earlier, um, you know, files on Charing Cross Road at the moment have got an entire um, table of books about being Danish. And I picked one up by a London journalist, which is called something like How to Be Danish and How to Lead a Danish Life, and then there's another one called, you know, A Guide to Denmark. Um, It's the happiest place in the world apparently um, and you know this woman was talking about her life in London and all the rest of it and then deciding no we're going to go to Denmark and the book ends with saying you know well we love paying high taxes here and you know I never thought I'd be saying this but you know it's great you know I know my children are going to have an education and we've got you know this that and the other through through living in this kind of society um, now I don't think that Denmark's perfect I don't think Scandinavia's perfect um, you've heard me say I don't think that capitalism works I think we need to have a collective de- debate about which way to go forward. There's no one model out there. But, you know, my God, if in this neoliberal world there are countries out there where people are willing to say, but we still sign up to free education and we still sign up to paying tax, and if we as a country are finding that, you know, foils out there can sell a table load of books just about those countries, well, that strikes me as very positive. And, you know, if a political leader comes forward and says, I'm going to wear Sarah Lund's jumper and say, let's all sign up to being Danish, I think they'll win in May. <laughs>
0: Well we've heard a very interesting talk, um, Dr Todd ended her talk by making the point that we have at least one positive resource, at least one positive resource and that's the resource of memory and I think she's used that resource today to make and to draw a number of trenchant lessons. She's pointed out for example that it's, there's always a choice about what to do in an economic crisis. And she's pointed out that it's possible to organise collectively, even in the sort of neo-Edwardian times in which we live. And she's shown, I think, that there are grander ambitions than the simple churning of social mobility. Ambitions like exercising control over your life and work and a deep democratisation. If you want to find out more about her ideas, her book is outside, and as I said at the beginning, um, she'll be staying here to sign it. But before you leave, can I ask you to join me in thanking our speaker, Dr Selina.